0: Hi, you found Point Counterpoint, and I'm your host, Chris Wright. Okay, so some quick housekeeping. I'm going to be reading from an essay. It's beautifully written, profound, written by Arthur Koestler called The Nightmare That Is a Reality. From January 9th, 1944, in the New York Times. New York Times Magazine, and I want you to keep in mind as you listen to this, the context of when it was written, 1944, that's during World War II, during the Holocaust. Keep that in mind, and many of the themes that will be presented are very relevant today, what you will hear in a variety of ways. It touches on a number of topics and most if not all of them are... have not aged, really. They're just as relevant. In fact, some of these I would argue are even more relevant and you'll see which parts those are and So this takes place during a terrible war with terrible atrocities. And so what I attempted to do was to go through it and find some of the parts that stood out to me personally. Of course that's where the opinion comes in. So different parts may ring more clearly for different people, of course. So I tried to find spots that I thought would be the most interesting to talk about. Some of you may be disappointed. That's why I recommend, after listening to this episode, you go into the description of this podcast episode and go to the link where I have the PDF to... This article, and you can read that yourself, because sometimes listening to it gets you interested. It sparks that drive to learn more about it. But sometimes it's that act of seeing it visually with your eyes that really that really uh, pushes a button. That really makes you see exactly what you were meant to see it opens that doorway that's one thing I want to do is to be able to go from your regular plane of existence and find that portal to another after listening this essay. So without further ado, I present to you, The Nightmare That Is a Reality. There is a dream, which keeps coming back to me at almost regular intervals. It is dark, and I am being murdered in some kind of thicket or brushwood. There is a busy road at no more than ten yards' distance. I scream for help, but nobody hears me. The crowd walks past, laughing and chatting. I know that a great many people share, with individual variations, the same type of dream. I have quarreled about it with analysts, and I believe it to be an archetype in the Jungian sense, an expression of the individual's ultimate loneliness when faced with death and cosmic violence, and his inability to communicate the unique horror of his experience. I further believe that it is the root of the ineffectiveness of our atrocity propaganda, for after all, you are the crowd who walk past laughing on the road. And there are a few of us, escaped victims or eyewitnesses of the things which happen in the thicket and who, haunted by our memories, go on screaming on the wireless, yelling at you in newspapers and in public meetings, theaters and cinemas. Now and then we succeed in reaching your ear for a minute. I know it each time this happens by a certain dumb wonder on your faces. A faint glassy stare entering your eye, and I tell myself, now you have got them, now hold them, hold them, so that they remain awake, but it only lasts a minute, you shake yourself like puppies who have got their fur wet, then the transplant screen descends again, and you walk on, protected by the dream barrier which stifles all sound. We, the Screamers, have been at it now for about ten years, and we started on the night when the epileptic Van der put fire to the German Parliament. We said, if you don't quench those flames at once, they will spread all over the world. You thought we were maniacs. At present, we have the mania of trying to tell you about the killing. By hot steam, mass electrocution, and live burial of the total Jewish population of Europe so far 3 million have died it is the greatest mass killing in recorded history and it goes on daily hourly as regularly as the ticking of your watch I have photographs before me on the desk while I'm writing this and that accounts for my emotion and bitterness people died to smuggle them out of Poland They thought it was worthwhile. The facts have been published in pamphlets, white books, newspapers, magazines, and whatnot. But the other day, I met with one of the best-known American journalists over here. He told me that in the course of some recent public opinion survey, nine out of ten American citizens, when asked whether they believed that the Nazis commit atrocities, answered, that it was all propaganda lies, and that they didn't believe a word of it. As to this country, I have been lecturing now for three years to the troops, and their attitude is the same. They don't believe in concentration camps. They don't believe in the starved children of Greece, in the shot hostages of France, in the mass graves of Poland. They have never heard of Lindis, Trebinka, or Belzec. You can convince them for an hour, then they shake themselves. Their mental self-defense begins to work, and in a week, the, sh- the shrug of incredulity has returned like a reflex, temporarily weakened by a shock. Clearly, All of this is becoming a mania with me and my like. Clearly, we must suffer from some morbid obsession, whereas the others are healthy and normal. But the characteristic symptom of maniacs is that they lose contact with reality and live in a fantasy world. So perhaps it is the other way round. Perhaps it is we, the screamers, who react in a sound and healthy way to the reality which surrounds us. Whereas you are the neurotics who totter about in a screened fantasy world because you lack the faculty to face the facts. Were it not so, this war would have been avoided and those murdered within sight of your daydreaming eyes would still be alive. I said perhaps because obviously the above can only be half the truth. There have been screamers at all times, prophets, preachers, teachers, and cranks cursing the obtuseness of their contemporaries. And the situation pattern remained very much the same. There are always the screamers, screaming from the thicket and the people who pass by on the road. They have ears, but hear not. They have eyes, but see not. So the roots of this must lie deeper than mere obtuseness. Is it perhaps the fault of the screamers? Sometimes, no doubt, but I do not believe this to be the core of the matter. Amos, Hosea, and Jeremiah were pretty good propagandists, and yet they failed to shake their people and to warn them. Cassandra's voice was said to have pierced walls, and yet the Trojan War took place. And at our end of the chain, in due proportion, I believe that on the whole, the Ministry of Information and the British Broadcasting Corporation are quite competent at their job. For almost three years, they had to keep this country going on nothing but defeats, and they succeeded. But at the same time, they lamentably failed to imbue the people with anything approaching a full awareness of what it was all about, of the grandeur and horror of the time into which they were born. They carried on business-as-usual style, with the only difference that the routine of this business included killing and being killed. Matter of fact, um, unimaginativeness has become a kind of Anglo-Saxon racial myth. It is usually opposed to Latin hysterics and praised for its high value in an emergency. But the myth does not say what happens between emergencies, and that the same quality is responsible for the failure to prevent the recurrence of emergencies. In fact, this limitation of awareness is not an Anglo-Saxon privilege, though the Anglo-Saxons are probably the only race which claim as an asset what others regard as a deficiency. Neither is it a matter of temperament. Stoics have wider horizons than fanatics. It is a psychological fact, inherent in our mental frame, which I believe has not received sufficient attention in social, psychology, or political theory. We say, I believe this, or I don't believe that, I know it, or I don't know it, and, and regard these as black and white alternatives. In reality, both knowing and believing have varying degrees of intensity. I know that there was a man called Spartacus who led the Roman slaves into revolt. But my belief in his one-time existence is much paler than in that of, say, Lenin. I believe in spiral nebulae can see them in a telescope and express their distances and figures, but they have a lower degree of reality for me than the ink spot on my table. Distance in space and time degrades intensity of awareness, so does magnitude. Seventeen is a figure which I know intimately like a friend. Fifty billion is just a sound. A dog run over by a car upsets our emotional balance and digestion. A million Jews killed in Poland causes but a moderate uneasiness. Statistics don't bleed. It is the detail which counts. We are unable to embrace the total process with our awareness we can only focus on little lumps of reality. So far, all this is a matter of degrees, of gradations, in the intensity of knowing and believing. But when we pass the realm of the finite and are faded with words like eternity in time, infinity of space, that is, when we approach the sphere of the absolute our reaction ceases to be a matter of degrees and becomes different in quality. Faced with the Absolute, understanding breaks down and our knowing and believing is lip service. Death, for instance, belongs to the category of the Absolute and our belief in it is merely a lip service belief. I know that the average statistical age, being about 65, I may reasonably expect to live no more than another 27 years, but if I knew for certain that I should die on November 30th, 1970, at 5 a.m., I would be poisoned by this knowledge, count and recount the remaining days and hours, grudge myself every wasted minute, in other words, develop a neurosis. This has nothing to do with hopes to live longer than the average If the date were fixed ten years later, the neurosis-forming process would remain the same. Thus we all live in a state of split consciousness. There is a tragic plane and a trivial plane, which are mutually incompatible. Usually we move on the trivial plane, blind and deaf to absolute realities, occasionally in moments of elation or at the death of a relative or when we fall in love, we find ourselves transferred to the absolute plane with its uncommon sense, cosmic perspective, but only for a short time. Back on the trivial plane, the realities of the other plane appear as overstrung nerves, adolescent effusions, or as romantic nonsense. And vice versa, during our short visits on the absolute plane, our normal routine appears as shallow, revoltingly frivolous, and we seem to suffocate under our inability to communicate the overwhelming experience of the other reality. Thus our minds are split into two different kinds of experienced knowledge. Their climate and language are as different as Church Latin from business slang. These limitations of awareness account for the limitations of enlightenment by propaganda. People go to cinemas, they see films of Nazi tortures, Of mass shootings, of underground conspiracy and self-sacrifice. They sigh, they shake their heads, some have a good cry, but they do not connect with the realities of their normal plane of existence. It is romance, it is art, it is those higher things, it is Church Latin. It does not click with reality. We live in a society of the Jekyll and Hyde pattern magnified into gigantic proportions. This was, however, not always the case to the same extent. There have been periods and movements in history in Athens in the early Renaissance, during the first years of the Russian Revolution, when at least certain representative layers of society had attained a relatively high level of mental integration, times when people seemed to rub their eyes and come awake, when their cosmic awareness seemed to expand when they were contemporaries in a much broader and fuller sense when the trivial and the cosmic planes seemed on the point of fusing and there have been periods of disintegration and disassociation but never before not even during the spectacular decay of rome and byzantium was split thinking so palpably evident such a uniform mass disease did human psychology reach such a height of phoniness. Our awareness seems to shrink in direct ratio as communications expand. The world is open to us as never before and we walk about as prisoners each in his private portable cage. Meanwhile, the watch goes on ticking. What can the screamers do but go on screaming until they get blue in the face? I know one who used used to tour this country addressing meetings an average of 10 a week he is a well-known publisher over here before each meeting he used to lock himself up in a room to close his eyes and to imagine in detail for 20 minutes that he was one of the people in poland who were killed one day he tried to feel what it was like to be suffocated by chloride gas in a death drain another day he had to dig his grave with 200 others and then face a machine gun which of course is rather unprecise and capricious in its aiming then he walked out on the platform and talked he kept going for a full year before he collapsed with a nervous breakdown he had a great command of his audiences and perhaps he has done some good perhaps he brought the two planes divided by miles of distance an inch closer to each other i think one should imitate this example Two minutes of this kind of exercise per day, with closed eyes, after reading the morning paper are at present more necessary to us than physical jerks and breathing the yogi way. It might even be a substitute for going to church. For as long as there are people on the road and victims in the thicket divided by dream barriers, this will remain a phony civilization. What an essay, what a beautiful piece of work. I think the first thing I want to talk about in this writing is the part, probably the most shocking part really, is when it's said that in a poll, 9 out of 10 Americans didn't believe that the Nazis were committing atrocities. And remember this is during Wo- World War II while the Holocaust is still going on. And this brings up an interesting question. Why is it that Americans weren't believing this? We had a common enemy which was Germany. It seems like it seems like it be common sense to want to believe horrible things about the enemy. It certainly happened at every part of history and yet this isn't the case you ask them if they believe that it's happening and they say it's just all propaganda lies by- propaganda Now it's true that World War II did have did have anti-war activists, as there are for every war, especially World War I and Vietnam. In World War II, I'm sh- I'm certain had less. So possibly some of these people may have been those that believed that these ideas were spread to further the Allied cause. But it adds to Arthur's point of nobody believing the cries of the screamers. They're all they're all living in their n- normal plane of existence, which I thought was a just a. Just such an insightful way to put it. That's right. The tragic plane and the trivial plane. And these people that didn't believe it were clearly living on the trivial plane. At times, I know I'm just rehashing what he said in the essay, but at times, you go through periods where you will have a brief encounter with the tragic plane. And then you go back and suddenly, any feelings that you had on the tragic plane you can't truly understand again. And when you're on the tragic plane, it's overwhelmingly difficult to convert those feelings to the trivial plane. Another point that I wanted to mention was when he talked about many people dying to get certain photos out out of Germany and Poland and it remind me of a story and this is an example of a man that you've never heard of I'm sure his name was Witold Pilecki and I'll just give you a little information about him uh, Witold Pilecki and if you want to look him up yourself it's W-I-T-O-L-D P-I-L-E-C-K-I He was a Polish cavalry officer, intelligence agent, and resistance leader. He served as a cavalry officer in the Polish army in the Polish-Soviet war and World War II. Pilecki was also a co-founder of the secret Polish army resistance group and later a member of the home army. And one thing he did was during the Holocaust he pretended to be a Jewish man and went into one of the concentration camps to document what happened and then he mat- he managed to sneak out he had a he and some others had a plan to escape and get information out unfortunately for him he died three years after the war ended in 1948 uh under Soviet rule in a Soviet prison camp but it's curious how some of these names never really make it to the mainstream people with untold bravery like these guys like this guy would told Pilecki but for whatever reason history forgot him everybody just goes about in their normal existence along the usual plane of existence but one thing that i really liked that he wrote was a way to try to escape and that was the little exercise that he recommended of for example this person that he he doesn't he doesn't give him a name but he was a well-known publisher that you know used thought experiments to try to put himself into these different horrible scenarios and eventually had a nervous breakdown now I'm just curious i wonder if that was the reason they had the nervous breakdown or was it because that he was doing 10 lectures a week for a year which is obviously going to have a take a toll on a man but either way it's a it's a stress that many people can't handle like maybe they'll they'll go they'll see a movie about the Holocaust or whatever or any other horrible thing. The Rwandan genocide. What was it called? Hotel Rwanda, I think that was the name of it? That's a good movie. And they cry, they have a sad moment, but then they just continue on with their lives and they don't really connect it to their own reality. just like how he said that he's he's able to look at different nebula in the cosmos and he knows that they exist he please he exist but they don't have the same level of reality for him as the ink blot on his desk no, a uh, an interesting thing i wanted to bring up was Why people sometimes behave in some of these bizarre ways. And three psychology experiments come to mind. And they have to do with things like conformity, obedience, or trying to play out a certain role. And the first one, the Milgram experiment, I know I've talked about this on the podcast before, but it was a while ago. It was an older episode. And, of course, Stanley Milgram did an experiment where he put a number of participants into the role of teacher, and then he had some confederates in another room in the role of student, and these students were meant to answer a series of questions, and whenever they got a question wrong, the experimenter would tell the teacher role, who was the participant, to give them a shock, to to press a buzzer, to go up to certain levels, to, to go up in increasing increments of shocks, the student progressively stronger. And it was actually the experiment was actually meant to be a control. He didn't expect people to be so obedient because it was meant to be a, an experiment on mind control and how the Nazis used these different used different methods to try to get people to do things and when they found out just how easily people will obey the authority. They didn't even have to go any farther. And sometimes they would tell them, and obviously, in psycho- psychological e- experiments like this are obviously voluntary, but they would tell them during the experiment, you must continue, you have to continue. Uh, Even though they they had been told at the beginning they can walk out at any point. But when this authority figure told them these things, it is necessary that you continue. They would go ahead and press the button. And then the confederate in the other room would pretend to be shocked. There was another similar experiment where they did it was really the same experiment essentially except instead of on people they did they were shocking puppies and this time they're using real shocks instead of fake ones and it had really the same result except with the uh... difference of the woman a hundred percent of them went all the way to the top shock level and the men it was like eighty percent i believe it was or. In and around there. Another experiment, the Phillips Zimbardo, or it's called the Zimbardo experiment, the Stanford prison experiment, and it was about putting people into these arbitrary roles. So the participants were placed into roles as either prison guard or prisoner, and they were meant to act in a particular fashion, and I believe the experiment went for about a week before they had to shut it down immediately because it was it was getting out of control. There was immediate abuse. The prison guards were committing abuses against these prisoners. Or they were meant to be prisoners, I should say. and of course Philip Zimbardo's girlfriend told him listen you gotta stop now the other experiment was the ash conformity experiment uh, where a number of people there is one participant and a number of confederates surrounding them and they're supposed to look at a number of lines and say whether the line the one of the lines was the same or a different length than the others. And the confederates would all say the wrong answer, the obviously wrong answer, and the participant would go ahead. And even though they knew that he was wrong, they would still say the wrong answer in order to conform with the group. People will do awful things as well as not believe that awful things are happening. For example, this goes back to a subject that I talked about a couple episodes ago. I talked about the Uyghur Muslims in China this is an example of something that we know is happening but yet it's on the wrong plane of existence for us and so it doesn't connect and what we need is we need to do something that brings these two planes of existence somewhat closer together close enough so that we can do something Because we know it's wrong. We know that it's immoral to put people into literal concentration camps. But why do we do it? Why? And fi- and finally, the last point that I wanted to make was that, was something that I found very, possibly the most relevant, I shouldn't say most relevant, but definitely among the most relevant points in the entire piece. And it's when he talks about all of us living in our own little bubble. we are more connected than ever before and yet we're more disconnected than ever before how is this even possible and I'd like to read that line the world is open to us as never before and we walk about as prisoners each in his private portable cage Meanwhile, the watch goes on ticking. What can the screamers do but go on screaming until they get blue in the face? Ironic. In each of our pockets, we have a box. Small, simple box, seemingly that changes our lives in the most profound of ways. It's something that we're really not ready for. We're not prepared for this sort of technology. each and I can't get over that line in his own private portable cage that's really what a phone is it's like you're just walking along you got your headphones in you're listening to music you're listening to a podcast whatever You don't care what's going on there, you you maybe scroll through Instagram, and even though Instagram connects you with the world, you're simply taking in some of the information, pulling it into yourself, and then you retreat back into your bubble. to happen is that to quote him for as long as there are people on the road and victims in the thicket divided by dream barriers this will remain a phony civilization all I want to heaven Is that we can destroy that dream barrier, that dream barrier that separates the two planes of existence the tragic and the trivial and that we're able, even if it just separates a little bit or just a little longer than usual, I want it to be easier for us to tap into that other plane. You don't have to live there the whole time Just make it easier for yourself. Use that little practice that he gave us. Two minutes a day of this kind of exercise with closed eyes after reading the morning paper or at present more necessary to us than physical jerks and breathing the yogi way, as he would put it. Alright, peace guys. Namaste. And, just to finish this out, I'm gonna just give you the song Buzzer by Dar Williams, which is about the Milgram experiment.
1: Sitting with a number eight platter at the restaurant $4.29 for almost anything I want Add it up, it's cheaper than the stuff I make myself I get by, I never needed anybody's help And I tore an ad and they told me that I would press the buzzer i press the buzzer At the graduate lab, they were doing some tests I press the buzzer, I press the buzzer Ride the circle In the maze of old prefabs, there'll be ways. I don't know how everybody makes it through the daily drill Paint the nails, walk a dog, pay every bill Feeling sorry for the sky that I pressed a shock I guess the answer's wrong I have to up the watts, and it begged me to stop But they told me to go I pressed the buzzer, I pressed the buzzer So get out of my head, just give me my line I press the buzzer, I press the buzzer Ride circle off of the highway Spiral into the driveway in the maze of all- brought me back to the lab to discuss the test I put my earrings on found my heels wore a dress right away I knew it was like a failed quiz the man said do you know what a fascist is I said yes when you do things you're not proud of but you're scraping by taking orders from above get it now I'm the face I'm the cause of war we don't have to blame white coated men anymore when I knew it was wrong I played it just like a game I pressed I press, I press the buzzer here's your 70 bucks now everything's changed i press the buzzer i press the buzzer but tell me where are your stocks would you do this again i press the buzzer and tell me who made your clothes was it children or men i press the buzzer ride the circle off the